to Joshua chapter 5 tonight. Book of Joshua chapter 5. No matter what had happened in the past with Israel in the wilderness, God is still committed to fulfilling His gracious promises for them as they cross the Jordan. He is relentlessly faithful. We are unable to make Him change His mind. And this is meant to be of great comfort to us. After the prologue in chapter 1, chapters 2 to 4 dealt with the theme of entering the land. Beginning here tonight in chapter 5 and all the way through chapter 12, the theme centers on taking the land. Chapters 5 through 8 really are one whole section on their own, but obviously that's a lot to get through in one night, so we'll break it down into sections over the next few weeks. During Israel's wandering in the wilderness for almost 40 years, their relationship with the Lord had steadily declined. After the initial circumcision and Passover as they left Egypt, the Israelites were less and less faithful. They did not remember these things or take part in these things, but these things were meant to be markers of God's promise to them, of His love for them and of their salvation. When they forgot to remember God's provision, they drifted further and further away to the point that none of those of that generation who initially came out of Egypt entered the promised land. And so covenant renewal is the theme of this section this evening. And the indispensable need there is to remember and celebrate God's provision so that we don't die in the wilderness. Before beginning the conquest of Canaan, God renewed His covenant with Israel by reinstituting the rite of circumcision in the feast of Passover. We must remember and celebrate God's provision of our salvation in Jesus Christ if we are to endure throughout our journey through this life by faith. Let me pray and we'll begin. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this objective statement of the truth that we can always come back to for here Your Son is revealed. The author and perfecter of our faith, O God. May we hear what this text is saying, what it said to Israel, what You mean it to say to us. By the power of Your Holy Spirit, work in our hearts tonight to listen and believe. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Beginning in verse 1, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. One of the reasons the Lord performed the miracle at the Jordan River in 424 was so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And immediately, that is the case for the Amorite kings west of the Jordan, the Canaanite kings along the Mediterranean Sea. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them. And notice now, this is kings that are in dread. We're not just talking about the common people like Rahab who had no resources to do anything about it. This entire region along with its rulers and its kings are asking if the Jordan River at its highest point of the year, can't keep the Israelites from entering our land, what can stop them? And so melted enemies, enemies with melted hearts, don't pose much of a threat. The Lord Himself has already begun to fight for His people, paving the way for them with the terror of their enemies. We pick it up in verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. 
So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Ha'aralath. So when the Lord says to Joshua that he's to circumcise a second time, he doesn't mean that individuals need to be re-circumcised. That's what verses 4 through 7 will show in part. But that Joshua is to implement the rite of circumcision in Israel once again because it had stopped. They weren't doing this at all. The Lord renews circumcision at the crucial time it was needed for Israel as they're about to take the promised land. This, along with the reinstitution of Passover later in the passage, gives the nation of Israel the opportunity to have the love and the promises of God fortified in their hearts before they take the land. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. The Passover celebrated the Exodus and the Mosaic Covenant. Israel, God's covenant nation, had lived in a state of suspension, of probation, really, during the 38 years of wandering in the wilderness. They didn't circumcise and they didn't celebrate the Passover until the unfaithful generation died off and this new generation was to be sanctified or set apart to now receive the inheritance. That was promised. Circumcision was the pledge, the seal and sign in human flesh of the Lord's covenant with and promises to Abraham. Remember, that promise came without any conditions for Abraham to meet. God proactively appeared to Abraham and promised him a great name, a special land, numerous children, and a particular seed through whom all the nations of the earth would eventually be blessed. That's Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 and verse 7. It's reiterated in Galatians 3.16. Now all the many children of Abraham stand on the soil of the land that was promised to Abraham with all their enemies melting in fear. This is the moment. The promise of the seed who will live, minister, die, and rise again in this very land is coming one massive step closer to fulfillment. So long before we get to Joshua 23.14, where it says this, it's already clear that the Lord is keeping all of His promises to Abraham. So Israel has every reason here to celebrate the right that is the sign of the covenant with Abraham, a covenant of God's free and unconditional grace. Notice here in verse 2, it's the Lord Himself who gives the command to make flint knives. Now, there are very specific instructions throughout the book of Joshua from God to Joshua. Metal, by this time, had been in use for centuries. Why use flint? I think one reason may be that the old tool used for circumcision in the days of Moses in Exodus 4:25 is a reminder that circumcision in the or, or that uh, circumcision is the ancient and long-standing sign of the Lord's covenant that stretches back more than 500 years to the time of Abraham. Interestingly enough, other nations did practice circumcision as a rite of passage uh, from boyhood to manhood, though usually at age 12 is when they did this. Infant circumcision appears unique to Israel in history, showing that their covenant is one of grace that God bestowed on their children before they were able to decide anything for themselves or accomplish any works. They received the sign of circumcision on their body. So righteousness through faith. The promise came first. Then the visible sign that that's the case followed with circumcision. So there's no hint of God reprimanding them for not having performed the right in so long. That's not what God is after here. Instead, there's this atmosphere of, of celebration in light of what is to come, of what's happening. In circumcision, God is reaffirming His everlasting pledge of unconditional grace for the offspring of Abraham. 
and he's placing the sign of grace on them. Circumcision also gives the people the opportunity to respond to him in faith by their desire to receive the sign, to renew this right. Very soon, Joshua will meet their divine commander in verses 13 through 15, who's even more assurance that God is going to give them the victory. So we pick it up in verse 4. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war, who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So this is basically a very short sermon or or commentary on what is taking place here in the right of circumcision. There's an implicit warning here in these verses that the law of God stands and it can't be broken without punishment. But there's also the affirmation that God's love and faithfulness are overwhelming and they can't be stopped either. It's clear in verses 4 through 6 that the Lord does what he says. He fulfills his threats as well as his promises. And so true to his word, every one of the faithless men from the generation that rebelled would not taste the milk and honey of the promised land. And they all died in the desert. But still the gracious promises of the Lord could not be completely destroyed by the disobedience of just one generation. The two that did believe entered Caleb and Joshua. Just, by the way, of all the millions of Israelites that came out, two entered the promised land. Caleb and Joshua, just two. So when you hear Jesus say later in the Gospels, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Take him very seriously. That's not hyperbole. Out of millions, there were two that made it. How rare is faith? In God that believes the promise. Here in verse 7, God's grace and faithfulness towards His people as a whole is staggering. God did not let His unconditional promise to Abraham fall from the, quote, shelf of His gracious promises, end quote. The land and the obedience of the generation receiving the land are both the result of God's work. So the time and the place of Jericho at Gilgal are just right for the reinstatement of circumcision. When the Lord has just displayed his power and his faithfulness at the river in spectacular fashion. He's worked to gain the undivided allegiance of his people by the defeat of Sihon and Og, by the miracle at the Jordan, and now by bringing the people as promised into the land of Canaan. Since he's demonstrated his faithfulness to this new generation, now's the perfect time to receive in their flesh the sign of their faithful Lord's covenant and to celebrate their status as God's own covenant people. Verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Now, if, if we take the census figures of Numbers 26, the most recent census, which gave a total of 601,730 fighting men, 
we could reasonably project the entire population of Israel to be about 2 million at this time. About half of them, a million by percentage, would be males. If, as assumed, the rite of circumcision ended 38 years earlier after the rebellion in Numbers 14, all males up to 38 years old now needed to be circumcised. The men between 39 and 58 had already been circumcised in Egypt. And all the men over 58 had died, except for Joshua and Caleb, as God had declared that all the men 20 years old and up would perish in the wilderness before Israel would enter the land. That's in Numbers 14, 22 to 29. So about a third of the males here are already circumcised and could perform or assist with the surgery, the procedure. So about two-thirds, around 700,000 were circumcised at Gilgal, most of the fighting force. In 5.8, when we read that the whole nation was circumcised, what that means is that males from every tribe of Israel had been circumcised. Not every male in Israel needed to be circumcised. Two-thirds of the nation is recovering. They're very vulnerable to an attack. This is when the Canaanites could overrun them and destroy them. But God, in His grace, in verse 1, has already taken care of that, hasn't He? They're too afraid to show their faces, which means that Israel has all the time it needs to heal before the conquest begins. God is very faithful. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. This settlement at the hill where the ceremony takes place is given the name Gilgal. That derives from the verb rolled away in Hebrew. This is about a mile and a third northeast of Jericho. There's actually about five places in the Old Testament that end up having the name Gilgal. What does it mean that circumcision signifies how God rolled away the reproach of Egypt? We could reasonably conclude from Exodus 32:12, from Numbers 14:13 to 16, and Deuteronomy 9:28, that this refers to God turning back the sarcasm the Egyptians could have leveled against Israel and their Lord if Israel would have ended up dying in the desert after their God brought them out of bondage. All that the Egyptians could have scorned is rolled away. It doesn't exist. Much like the hearts of the Canaanites are melting away. Even if it takes longer than we have anticipated, the Lord keeps His promises. He performs His Word. He does what He says. And beloved, the rolling away of the reproach of Egypt at Gilgal foreshadows the rolling away of humanity's guilt at Golgotha. Golgotha and Gilgal both derive from the same Hebrew verb. Sin has been canceled. Sin has been rolled away, so to speak. And the accuser can say nothing. Now in Israel, as they stand on the soil of the promised land, circumcised and healed, they can eat the Passover meal once more. According to the Lord's command back in Exodus 12:48, remember, no uncircumcised male could eat the Lord's Passover. But now that reproach has been removed from Israel and all the people can finally participate in the new Passover. This is the first and great celebration of the Lord's deliverance and covenant faithfulness for that younger generation. This is their first taste of this joy and blessing. It's also the very first Passover in the Promised Land, anticipating the great end-time banquet after the Lord has finally swallowed up death and removed 
the reproach of His people forever in Isaiah 25, 6-9. Let me pick this text up in verse 10 now. Or this chapter in verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So the Passover feast recalled the great release from slavery from Egypt exactly 40 years to the day prior to chapter 5, verse 10. Those younger than 39 years old have never celebrated the Passover, not even as infants. This year, with the full moon of Passover over Gilgal, maybe it's not just children, but even some adults asking, what do you mean by this ceremony? As God said, the children would ask in Exodus 12, 26 and 13, 14, when they took the Passover. This holy meal was intended by God to be the setting for the teaching about God's salvation of Israel. The eating of unleavened bread in 511 points to the second part of the double feast of Passover in the feast of unleavened bread. Leviticus 23, 4-8. What's special, though, about this particular bread in verse 11 is that this bread is made from the grain of the promised land. It's eaten together with roasted grain. That means the Canaanites had apparently fled their fields, leaving them open. They, they wanted to get safely inside the walls of Jericho, which means the Israelites are now eating from fields they did not plant in fulfillment of God's promise in Deuteronomy 6 11. The note in verse 12 reveals that now, it's at this moment, that God stops providing manna from heaven, that unique bread from heaven that um, began in the time of Exodus 16. The Lord had rained down bread from heaven for one month less than 40 years at this point. Israel began eating the manna in the middle of the second month following the Exodus. It stopped in the middle of the first month 40 years later here in Joshua 5, 11, and 12, but there's no hint of sadness in this news that they will no longer need manna from heaven. In fact, it's precisely the opposite. The manna had been good to the taste, but it also left a bitter taste in the mouth of the Israelites. It was a daily reminder of the difficulty and struggle in the wilderness. They shouldn't have been there. They should have been eating the fruit of the promised land this too has been rolled away. This bitterness. They now stand in a land filled with streams of water and springs and deep waters coming out in the valleys and hills. It is a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, of olive oil and honey. A land in which you will not eat bread in poverty. Deuteronomy 8, 7 through 9. So by God's grace, remember, Israel is beginning to eat from fields they neither planted nor tended. That's like us partaking of salvation by grace through faith. It is a day on which the Lord's gracious covenant with His people is confirmed through His covenant rites of circumcision and the Passover. The end of the manna is an occasion for celebration of the fulfilled promises of their God. So this great military campaign is about to begin for Israel. You might think that the camp at Gilgal then would be bustling with strategies and preparations for war and 
the gathering of all the supplies they would need. Instead, as a picture of God's faithfulness to His promise, as a picture of the future, they have a whole week or more devoted to the Lord for purely spiritual purposes, and it's uninterrupted. They are not bothered. Their enemies have fled. God is renewing His grace to them. Power for covenant faith and sanctified living in the Holy Land as they enter it. A land also filled with temptation for them that they will succumb to. Those things were also being provided. God uses His grace and His faithfulness to encourage His people and make them ready for the road ahead, whatever it might hold. In this we see the glory and sufficiency of Christ for us and what Christ has done and what His sacrifice means that is so much further and more than the Old Testament or Old Covenant sacrifices method. We must remember and celebrate God's provision of our salvation in Jesus Christ if we're to endure throughout our journey through this life by faith. Beloved, remember and celebrate what God has done for you in Christ. What He's demonstrated and proven and accomplished by Him for you. Keep your eyes up and on Christ where He is seated at the right hand of God the Father who is making all His enemies, yours included in that, a footstool for His feet. Who knows what the road ahead holds for us here in America. It used to seem like we could plot out our future with quite a bit of certainty. Make all our plans knowing that barring some crazy occasion or occurrence, they would come to fruition. Who knows what these years of freedom of religion by God's providence in America, where we just have time to soak in the Word and publicly worship our God and claim the name of Christ and gather with the saints whenever we want without any of the government's interference or having to get their permission. All this wonderful time where we've not had to fight, where we've not had to worry What has God been preparing us for? What has this ongoing opportunity to feast on the promises of God without being attacked? What has that been getting us ready for? May we learn to think biblically and theologically about all things as Paul would have us do. For us, the prospect that all those things might be taken away is just crazy when it's pretty much the reality for much of the rest of the world for Christians. We've been living in a land that that we actually have time to argue in church and bicker and fight and split and divide and all this. We've had time to build seminaries and you know all these types of things and have rallies and big giant conferences and all this. And We've had all this time to feast on what God has done for us. We're an anomaly in the world of Christianity. We're an anomaly. And as we feel the noose tighten around our necks, now is the time to celebrate and to remember what God has done for us in Christ. We're going to need that fuel inside for what is to come. No question. Let us fix our eyes on what God has done for us in Christ. See, in Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Him is the accomplishment of our salvation and the fulfillment of all God's promises that He made to Abraham. 
and then brought to us in America through the gospel. Would you stand, please? There really is only one constant, isn't there, in our lives? Jesus' promise of salvation never moves. It never changes. One day, most likely in our lifetimes, that will be all we have to cling to. Let us savor it and come to understand what it is now in these days, on evenings like this one, where we can gather without any worry with the saints. But the promised land has been purchased by Christ. We will cross over. We will meet Him there for all eternity.